0: This is Jim Inkster, and we are pleased you are with us for Talk Louisiana. Signature support is from the office of East Baton Rouge Parish Mayor President Sharon Weston-Broom, and the show originates from the Investar Bank Tower in Baton Rouge. We lead off the week with Peter Kovacs, one of our favorite guests who still calls Baton Rouge home, even though he logged most of his life in New Orleans, and is a gentleman who's from the East Coast, went to Brown University, and still on occasion goes back to Rhode Island, but right now he's with us, and he's at your service at 877-217-5757, and you can reach us by email, talk at talk And James Gill, one of his colleagues, died last week, 81 years old, and one of the remarkable talents to inhabit this state a man who truly could have worked anywhere and a cervic wit like few others and peter knew him for his entire career and edited many of james's 4000 columns through the years and gill was writing prolifically right to the end had a cardiac arrest and didn't make it 81 years young and today that doesn't seem like an old man but he is gone and with him goes one of the remarkable Parts of our lives reading him was a true pleasure and and we were honored to have him in our midst I I asked him to be on this show a few times and I I, it just wasn't his thing He once said my handlers just won't my my handlers just don't want me to do it But uh, I think he didn't want to do it and he was so good at what he did. uh, He didn't have to do anything else He was James Gill, but Peter when did you first meet this man? Uh,
1: Well, I I met James Gill Uh, shortly after I started shortly after I started at the Picayune and uh, one of the things that they had me do was to visit the various parts of the newsroom, which was vast in those days, and James was the editor in charge of uh, East Jefferson and um, I went out there. I actually probably filled in for him for a week and I went out there to meet the staff and we went to lunch and they all ordered a beer at lunch and, um, I, uh, I that was not something that would have occurred in Alabama and yeah. um, uh, we were driving back to the office on Veterans Highway and there was a the Paradise Lanes bowling alley was on the lakeside of veterans and he we were stopped at a traffic light and he looked at the Paradise Lanes bowling alley and he said this is not exactly my idea of paradise <laughs> <laughs>
0: But he ended up staying a long, long time.
1: Uh, I think the bowling alley was not his idea. No, I, uh, I know. he, he lived. Mattery was his idea of paradise because he lived there for 40 years.
0: He did. I, New Orleans, as we know, is a city like no other. But sometimes uh, I remember my friend uh, and colleague, Kevin Gallagher, was once a limo driver, and he drove Gary Owens, remember? Mm-hmm. Your announcer from yeah. Rowan and Martin's Life, mm-hmm. and drove him to the – Downtown hotel in New Orleans, one of them, and picked him up at the airport, and Owens looked out the window, he said, this is New Orleans? Are you kidding me? (laughs) 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 Not what he expected on the way to the downtown area, but James Gill wrote about uh, this area and its people and its politicians like nobody else, and there were a few that he skewered regularly and uh, lived to fight another day. One of them was Harry Lee. He had... Were they frenemies or were they just enemies?
1: Well, Harry Lee sued him quite a few times, and um, I always uh, told – Jack Weiss was the attorney, and I always told Jack and James that um, that they were putting Jack Weiss's kids through college. <laughs> and um, – but they could even, – even despite that, they could mix it up, um, uh, but – his relation with Harry was more hostile than, I think, his relation with most politicians.
0: And Harry, uh, he was he did not hold back when it came to James Gill.
1: No, Harry did not like James Gill. In fact, when James Gill was the bureau chief in East Jefferson, the editor of uh, East Jefferson, uh, it was his staff that uncovered what was Harry Lee's big scandal with um, a rapist. There was a rapist who was imprisoned by Harry Lee and was allowed out during the day and uh, one day his victim saw him on the bus and she I guess went to the newspaper and said you know what the heck and that led to uh, revealing that somehow as a favor to someone they were kind of letting this rapist spend the night in jail and then go out and do what he wanted during the day and that nearly killed Harry Lee's career Mm-hmm. Um, but he overcame it and won re-election, and the rest is history.
0: Well, some of the things Gill wrote about probably helped Lee. One was that barricade in 1987. He won re-election that year, and that may have been the reason why.
1: I think the barricade helped Harry Lee. Uh, I, I think the barricade was Harry Lee's way of putting the scandal with the rapist behind him, and it worked.
0: And it worked. And that was the same ballot that uh, Edwin Edwards... Uh, lost to Buddy Romer he lo- he finished second didn't go to the post in the runoff but it was the same night and Edwards and Harry Lee were quite close
1: yeah Edwards and Harry Lee were Harry Lee were very close um, and I don't know if they ever discussed James Gill but now we'll we'll never find out and
0: James wrote like few others about Edwin Edwards now that's a gift that you don't often get to be able to cover 16 years of edwin washington edwards and the other day i was i was calculating he he was governor for five thousand seven hundred eighty four days and he was in federal prison for three thousand seven days so he had twenty four years of public housing
1: <laughs> okay that's uh... You're, you're one of the few people who could figure that out so i I'm impressed.
0: And, and uh... james gill wrote about him and captured him mm. uh... dramatically but But Edwards, uh, of course, was gold for anybody, and uh, we're going to remember James Gill, but before the show, I was trying to remember who he made the quote to about the the, uh, dead girl live boy, and it was none other than...
1: Um, It was Dean Baquet who went on to be editor of the New York Times and just retired, and um, Dean... uh, struggled, I was not involved in this, but he struggled to convince, at the time, the more senior editors of the Picayune to publish the quote, uh, and, and finally did, but after the election.
0: After the election?
1: That, yeah, people don't remember that part of the story. I didn't know that.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, Edwards was a guy who was so quick, and as I told Peter, he was capable of stealing a good line too. He, the... Uh, Uh, Wizards Under the Sheets line was actually from Jamie Wax, but Edwin took it and ran with it. But that's one that is all his. (laughs) And it's one that uh, when he died, it was in every obit, every one of them. And it was Dean Baquet who actually got him to say that.
1: It was a great quote. You know, one of the best things about being Gill's editor was I was the first person to read his column. And I remember when Bill Clinton was – in his sex scandal when he was running for president, not the one when he was president. I can't remember her name. Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers who well, he was in the Jennifer Flowers sex scandal and after he, right after that scandal he came to Louisiana and I knew James Gill was going to write about it and he had a delicious column about James Gill, about um, uh, Bill Clinton with a sex scandal coming to Louisiana to talk to the master
0: Edwin Edwards, the day after, the day after the 60 Minutes interview, I was there at the Capitol, and uh, the story goes, and it's not refuted by either Edwards or Clinton, but Clinton's riding to the press conference from the airport with Edwards in the car, and they're telling him that Jennifer Flowers just had a press conference and said that they had had a torrid 12-year affair, and he said to Edwards, he says, well, how how do I answer that? And he goes, you tell them there's no such thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and he did and uh he got cover from edwin washington edwards uh that he would not have gotten from others but um uh, bill clinton as we know ended up living to fight another day and, and edwin edwards he won that race in 91 uh when he was all but dead politically and he had the gift of david duke and gill wrote frequently about duke in his heyday
1: Yeah, Gill actually was probably one of the first people, you know, Gill lived in that part of Metairie. I mean, Gill was probably a constituent of David Duke. Don't know that he voted for him, but he was a constituent. And he lived in that part of Metairie, and and he was one of the first people to talk about how Duke might just win that legislative election, uh, which he did um, against John Treen.
0: Yeah, and Treen was a, a guy who made his brother look effusive, and Dave was not a big personality uh, as far as uh, a gladhander, but, but John took it to another level. Now, I liked John Treen. I really liked the guy a lot, and, uh, and I knew him better than I knew David Treen, but, and he was the older brother too, but, but it was Jim Donnellan. No, it was actually Bob Livingston. It was Bob Livingston who said, you know, Treen would have won that race, but he started going door to door.
1: <laughs> i never heard that and he lost before.
0: by 227 <clears throat> votes yeah,
1: right that's pro- so he probably went to 228 doors or something <laughs> like that so um but anyhow Gil was like one of the first people to kind of pick up on that
0: yeah, he was and uh he will be missed and, and i'm just looking at the stories he's written just over the last couple of months um Governor Landry singing a new verse of the same old song, Drilling Jobs. That sounds just like him. And and I could go on and on and on. He wrote a few about uh, Mardi Gras. Here's one. Jefferson Parish grew up. Now it's growing old. That was quite perceptive from James Gill.
1: That's true of Jefferson. It is.
0: It is. And and we'll talk more about James Gill and other matters with Peter Kovacs when we return in 89.3 seconds. This is Jim Inkster. You are listening to Talk Louisiana, and your number is 877-217-5757. Emails to talk at talklouisiana.org. Peter Kovacs, the former editor of The Advocate and the Picayune, is with us, and we've opened the show by appropriately remembering the great talent James Gill, the columnist who penned 4,000 columns for the newspaper, died last week at the age of eighty one and he was still on the payroll and still writing prolifically as he always did And uh, listener jody asked about how he ended up in new orleans
1: uh... he ended up in new orleans he was always interested in i think new orleans music um, <clears throat> he came to the united states uh... to write a book about uh, horse racing he wrote a book about horse racing in england and then he came to kentucky to write a book about horse racing Uh, He met his first wife, and he moved to Louisiana and worked at the Homa Courier, and the Picayune hired him about a year later, and he tells this story about getting hired, that he was called, and he was, he met with them, and he was interviewed for a job as an editorial writer, and they told him, you know, we really need somebody who's local and really knows the scene, and, you know, had friends. Knows friends from growing up, high school, and <laughs> how they see the world and all that. And he's sitting there with his British accent. He's thinking, why, are we, why am I even here? And then they hired him.
0: And then they hired him. And it he, turned out to be a good hire.
1: He, he was an editorial writer at first. And about a year after he got there, they made a big move. This was before my time. And they merged the morning... He was with the Picayune, and they merged the Picayune and the state's item... And uh, used a lot of the duplicative staff in order to build these suburban bureaus and publish specialized editions so that the Metairie newspaper was different than the New Orleans newspaper. And James was put in charge of the East Jefferson, Metairie, and Kenner Bureau, which at the time probably had a dozen reporters, photographers, prep sports writers, etc. And that was where I first knew him. 877-217-5757
0: 877-217-5757 for Peter Kovacs. David in Atlanta. David, you're on Talk Louisiana.
2: Good morning, gentlemen. And before I get to my question for your guests, it's an old falsehood. Harry Lee did not put up the barricade. It was Bob Evans. He was a council person in in Jefferson, and he was investigated by the FBI uh, in the banking scandal back in that era. Um, well, okay i hope that's noted uh and you know um jefferson parish well james gill used to get under the skin of keith rush which delighted me to no end (laughs) and you know keith rush was a keynote speaker at duke fest on july 4th 1991 at the old city park driving range and he was appointed keith rush was appointed to the causeway commission by the jefferson parish council and a Voted by the people of Jefferson into different Republican offices, and I thought that was nauseating and disgusting. All right. for Jefferson mm-hmm. Parish to take a, a liking to a Duke supporter, Mr. Gobax. My mm-hmm. question for you, sir, is: Why isn't the mainstream media, the so-called uh, what false media, whatever they call it, mm-hmm. when when Trump says things like uh, he, he's going to encourage Russia to attack a NATO nation, and uh, you know uh, other outrageous uh, talks like weaponizing the
1: Justice Department? Why isn't the mainstream media covering this?
0: All right. I, I think the mainstream media is.
1: I, I think the mainstream media is covering it, and um, uh, and I think Trump says those things in order to get the mainstream media to
0: cover them. And he says so many things that he can change the subject too. And when he was tweeting, he he had an even more pronounced way of doing that. But I don't think the mainstream media are ignoring Donald Trump. And and the uh, the irony too is that. Uh, his popularity remains solid. He, he has not been afflicted by negative media stories, nor has he been afflicted, it appears, by four indictments. There has been no one like him. How do you explain his staying power?
1: Well, I think the Republican Party uh, uh, was not necessarily looking out for voters who were Republicans, at least in the view of those voters but um i you know i still think trump winds up losing to biden again and uh... he you know um, he won that south carolina primary very decisively but on the other hand he you know he didn't get forty percent of the vote and where are those people gonna go
0: i don't know Mm -hmm. but um... as we know biden has his issues and the election is getting closer and closer Dominic in Grand Coulee. Dominic, here on Talk Louisiana with Peter. Kobach. Good morning,
2: man.
3: Hello, you guys. Hey, Peter. Uh, Dominic here. I used to write for the Advocate for years as a columnist, oh. Cross Culture, and Tune In, and these kind of things out of Lafayette.
1: Okay, good.
3: But I've yeah, I've met with you anyway. Um, I, a question I got. It's kind of a, it's a Trump thing. Is why doesn't you know print and broadcast media every time they mention Trump in a story. They're not saying that they shouldn't... Why aren't they including the fact that he's a four-time indicted and twice convicted former president? I mean, in every story, that should be in there somewhere, a tagline, or whatever you want to call it. Well,
1: I think the indictments it, are mentioned, but I don't know what he was convicted of.
0: Yeah, and he, then can, he's been found liable in civil court. Yeah, yeah he hasn't been convicted of a, anything. That's not a... Yeah. Like the other day, first caller for Jeff Landry was about, why he supports Trump if he's for crime fighting? Well... Well, Trump uh, has been found liable of uh, sexually assaulting a woman in court, um, but he hasn't been found guilty of anything yet. And if he is convicted, will that matter? Will that be the coup de grace?
1: I could see a scenario in which he is convicted um, and is still the nominee of the Republican Party and loses. I I still think he's going to lose.
0: Well, it. it (laughs) I think. He could lose, he may lose, but I don't think he'll lose by much. And one of the reasons, Peter, is that uh, the region that you have called home, and so have I, but you lived in two of the SEC states. I guess I've lived in two as well, Arkansas and Louisiana, but those 11 states, and I include Georgia, which I think will go for Trump this time. I think so, too. That's 160 electoral votes. 160, when you count Oklahoma, which has just been put in. Mm-hmm. so And and by the way, Trump's carried every county in Oklahoma twice. Every county, including Norman and Oklahoma City. Those counties, those university places are usually tricky for him, but not in Oklahoma. So 160 electoral votes, that means he only needs to get a 110 in other places. And we know he's going to carry the Dakotas and Wyoming and Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa. In Montana and Idaho, and, and you go down the line, Alaska, he he starts with well over two hundred electoral votes, pretty much in the bag. I I uh,
1: you can you can invite me back and and make me eat humble pie when I'm wrong.
0: But well, I, I think is, well Biden yeah. also starts with about two hundred yeah, electoral votes, yeah. so yeah. it comes down to those six yeah. states, and in those six states, he's leading in five of them right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I. I I think there's a chance that he gets convicted in New York regardless of what you think of the case just because it's in New York.
0: Oh yeah, and uh, I, I agree. Yeah. And and, and uh, before all the problems with Fonnie Willis, I think he he. I don't think a jury in Atlanta will convict him. I don't think they will acquit him either. But a hung jury for him is is, vic- is as good as an acquittal.
1: It's a victory, like it was for Edwin Edwards the
0: first time. That's right. Although Edwin, it was 11-1 the other way.
1: Yeah, but he's still
0: remember that guy Clifford West. I wish we could find him. The yeah, jury was doing thumbs, thumbs down. down. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and he he was he, the oh, he was the one holdout. Yeah. Mike in Villa Del Rey. Mike, you're on with Peter Kovacs.
2: Uh, I'd like to extend my remarks on the assault in the civil trial that a federal judge said what he lost that civil trial on was described as rape. And I'm wondering if Jeffrey Dahmer was running against Nikki Haley? Would he get the Republican
0: nomination? All right. Well, I don't think there is a, a, a real comparison between those two. Now, as we know, Bill Clinton, who I as a politician, I, I admired him immensely, but he also was accused of rape. He never went to trial, but he was accused by to Broderick, and I uh, know those Republicans were saying he's a rapist. He's a rapist now the, the verbiage used in that trial was sexual assault, not rape. He was not found guilty or liable for rape. He was found liable for sexual assault. Some would believe that's just, you know, that's, that's just the semantics, but, but, um, he could be tried. I understand. And so for that, and that would be an interesting trial because I think he would be vulnerable.
1: Um, yeah, I don't know what, what the, Status of the whether there's whether it's still eligible.
0: I think property. the state statute of limitations has changed, so yeah. Trump's not out of the woods, no doubt about it. We're back after this. This is Jim Inkster. Thank you for being with us for Talk Louisiana. James Gill, the venerable columnist for the Advocate in Picayune, mostly Picayune. He died last week at 81 after penning 4,000 columns. And Peter Kovacs knew him well. Did, when you edited him, did you ever have to take out anything?
1: Um, you know, editing him was uh, was was enjoyable, but he was a ferocious uh, defender of every word in that column. And if I would suggest something to him to take out or change, um, he he usually was not agreeable to it. And uh, the big thing I, we always would talk about was. He would use English expressions from his youth, and when I would tell him that's not something Americans know, he often didn't realize that because, you know, for example, right. if you grew up in Louisiana and then you went to England and talked about lanyap, it wouldn't occur or to
0: you. Or how he said something like the cow ate the cabbage or it, something. Yeah, yeah, It wouldn't yeah. occur to you that they didn't know what that meant. Right. And I we,
1: we, had a big red dictionary, and I would pull out the dictionary and look it up, and if it said chiefly Brit, then we'd decide I was right. And if it didn't, I would let it live.
0: Well, Harry Lee was so miffed at uh, Gill's writing that he once sent a photograph of horse manure with a note that read, this is a classic example of a James Gill column. And no, Gill replied, as he referenced the Sheriff's family-owned restaurant, it's a classic dish from the House of Lee. That was a stern comeback from from yeah, James yeah. Gill.
1: I, I didn't know. I saw that in the obituary. I did not know where Tyler got. i would not heard
0: that Yeah, story. Tyler did a nice job, too, and I, I know he knew James Gill well, but James uh, was a guy who uh, had to, at times, uh, face threats, and, and he was not a public man, and that may have been one of the reasons why, but... But uh, people like him don't write the way he did, as skillfully as as he did, carving people up one side and down the other without uh, there being uh, an opposite and equal reaction.
1: Uh, I don't remember any, you know, uh, this was a more civil era for the most part, so I don't remember any threats against his health. Uh, I mean, there were lawsuit threats, and there were lawsuits, mostly from Harry Lee. (laughs) And and most of Harry Lee's lawsuits uh, expired. There was, a, I don't know how the law works now, but in those days, a, a lawsuit that was not acted upon for a certain number of years was considered to have been abandoned.
0: Gretchen in St. Francisville. Gretchen, good morning.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh,
3: I'm remarking on uh, the business of Trump uh, s- s- speaking about Putin. Um, I think he was not just trying to get in the papers. I think that. He, He really has a kinship there, and it points to what's so key in this election, and it has to do with truth. And he and Putin, and and this is just so essential, they use lies as a strategy.
0: All right, well, uh, it appears that uh, they do like one another, which is interesting because in the Republican Party of old and not so old, uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, was he was often uh, scolded by Democrats for being too hard on Russia. Well, now it's, the world has changed, Peter.
1: You know, it has. And and one thing about Trump is, you know, he, he, I, I think he exaggerates in order to get attention. And that was certainly not a presidential thing to say. Uh, but his grievance, his initial grievance when he came into office, was that the European NATO partners were not spending sufficiently, A sufficient percentage of their GDP on defense, which sort of made American taxpayers the suckers in the relationship. And he did get the European powers to spend more. Even before the Ukrainian invasion, he succeeded in getting some of the European nations to spend more on defense. And of course, now the invasion of Ukraine has convinced them that they need to spend more on defense.
0: Well, um, that is a valid. argument, no doubt. But the uh, the thing about Putin that is troubling to me most is that he's a bad, bad, bad guy. But I would suspect that Democrats have more hate for Donald Trump than they do for Vladimir Putin. And Republicans have more hate for Joe Biden than they do for Putin. And we're Americans. It shouldn't be that way.
1: I think that's, you know, I think that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, Putin, if you look at, you know, approval, disapproval polls, Putin ends up below both Biden and Trump because Putin has no supporters, really. You know, he, he, you know, um, so his, his approval would be, you know, 10%, you know, Biden and Trump's approval is each 40% because they do have supporters.
0: And a lot of these social issues that are, that are prominent in the U.S., uh, like in Russia, um, I would suspect abortions fairly rampant in Russia.
1: I, yeah, I don't, that's not a subject, but but
0: in America, if you're a Democrat and you're in favor of abortion rights, you're a baby killer. Uh, But Putin certainly is not a person who uh, has uh, many, many levels of restraint when it comes to getting what he wants. And uh, he is a tyrant and a dictator and he is a killer and uh, he needs to be addressed in that manner, not to be revered by, what did you think of Tucker Carlson's interview with him?
1: You know, I didn't see it, um, and um, I I don't think that a legitimate journalistic interview with Putin is off limits. Um, no. But it, it should be a legitimate no. journalist interviewing Putin, um, not Tucker Carlson.
0: Well, I remember when Dan Rather interviewed um, Saddam Hussein, and it was a big get, and mm-hmm. And uh, Saddam Hussein, he asked him about his popularity in Iraq and he said, well, I got 100 percent of the votes in the last election and rather just went on to the next question. Then he was on Larry King. They said, how could you just let that go? Well, he said, come on now. If somebody says that, the answer is so ridiculous that that speaks for itself. He didn't have to say anything else. Nobody gets 100 percent in an election unless they're being forced or they're forcing others to vote for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's true.
0: Well, Zach in South Baton Rouge, you're on with Peter. Good morning, Zach.
3: Good morning. Uh, Jim, I'm not sure you're getting the point that people are calling in regarding Trump. Um, I mean, people hate Trump because he hates America, basically. And he's going everything against all the things that America stands for. Uh, well, why do you th- why
0: do you think he hates America? I think he loves Donald Trump a lot, but I don't think he necessarily hates America
3: you listen to what he say about America, America is a wasteland, America is so-and-so. It's always America is so bad unless he's a president. Well, he's not a president, then America is not good, then. So I'm not sure that you, you're, you're illustrating to the to, to the listeners all the things this man is standing for, what he says he's going to do, is done already. The amount of money he's wasting of taxpayer dollars with all these court cases, even while he was in office going back and forth to, to Florida using taxpayer dollars for his benefit. So all the things that he's doing... It's not being brought up on the show unless a caller call in.
0: Okay, I I think we've talked about a lot of Donald Trump's foibles through the years. There is no doubt. And uh, there are people like Gustavo and Goodwood who would uh, think otherwise. Uh, but I appreciate your comments. But Donald Trump, if any man wakes up every morning and says, this is this a great country or what? It has to be Donald Trump.
1: Uh, yeah, I would not say that describing uh, the, the way he describes America – portrays hatred of America. I think it portrays hatred of of Joe Biden.
0: And anyone who disagrees uh, with him.
1: Yeah, and anyone who disagrees with him. And, you know, progressive district attorneys and and whatever else. And, you know, people forget crime. Crime is up. Crime is down over the last year. Mm -hmm. Crime is up. And uh, Jeff Landry just got elected governor of Louisiana talking about crime, 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 and crime. And uh, one of the interesting things I thought about this race was that the what I think is the more pressing problem in Louisiana, which is economic decline, really wasn't an issue in the governor's race at all.
0: Well, um, it really wasn't. There weren't many issues in the race, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and Landry had the mojo to basically elbow everybody out. But uh, there were four, four, three Republicans and an independent who collectively invested $20 million and got 17% of the votes. So he ran a good campaign, but uh, we'll see. He's got uh, some heavy lifting to do, and he's trying to do it in his way. And for those who are surprised that Jeff Landry's governing as a conservative, I mean, my goodness, what did you expect? And the fact that he gave the Democrats a second-majority black district, he's giving them a Supreme Court uh, uh, district as well, I think is indicative of the fact that he does have some pragmatism to him.
1: Uh, well, I think he has enough pragmatism to make a deal with Cleo Fields.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you think? You, <laughs> um, <laughs> you yeah. think? Okay. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, that, that was going to be forced by the federal judge anyhow, and so...
0: Well, and not only make a deal with Cleo Fields, but to nail a perceived enemy in Garrett Graves. Yeah. And there's a bill floating around now, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but... It would um, it would limit gubernatorial uh, holders to just two terms, meaning John Bell couldn't make a comeback in 2027. I, I thought it was
1: interesting that they offered that bill uh, because it portrays, I thought, weakness in the sense that you're going to pass. You know, you're worried about John Bell in three and a half years, and you're going to pass a bill to erase him.
0: Like, well, yeah, Phil and Jefferson Terrace. Hi, Phil.
3: Hi, Jim. Um, Listen. um, My question is this: What would you think that, um, that Mr. That what his legacy is? That what he would be proud of
2: um, in terms of um, something that changed or something that uh, that our columnists discovered or took? uh, I mean, there
0: was a lot of corruption going on. We sure do not lack for corruption. You're talking (laughs) about James Gill. Yes, sir. Yeah, his legacy got 4,000 columns to choose from. I'm sure there'll be a memorial in which he will be extolled for the great writer he was.
1: Uh, There will be a memorial, and I appreciate you calling. I appreciate a question about James Gill. (laughs) Um, And uh, he, um, uh, more in his earlier days, when when Edwin Edwards was governor, um, had some investigative columns about some of the deals that were going on. You know, and of course, in those days, you know, the Democratic Party dominated by Edwin Edwards was kind of the corrupt party and the Republican Party tended to be the reform party. Uh, I think I wouldn't say that about today, but that's what it was like in his heyday.
0: 877-217-5757. A few more minutes with Peter Kovacs if you'd like to get in under the wire, and then we'll hear from Blake Gilpin, professor at Tulane University. who will be at the Old State Capitol tomorrow. And he will reflect on black suffrage in America. It's been a long, tough slog, and we'll talk more after this. This is Jim Inkster. In just a moment, we'll hear from Blake Gilpin, professor of note and a remarkable writer himself, who will be in Baton Rouge tomorrow for a presentation at the old state capitol on black suffrage. 877-217-5757. 877-217-5757. two one seven five seven five seven. We're finishing up with Peter Kovacs, Patrick, and in Ennis Walde states. Patrick, you're on. Good morning.
2: Hey y'all. Are,
3: y'all were talking about Trump, and I just I find it hard that a lady can bring accusations
4: thirty years later, <laughs> and there's very little evidence to prove that this happened other than her word. And she, I think she had a couple friends that backed her up, but I mean like. That means anyone can, you know, thirty years in the future, just say I sexually harassed them. There's no evidence.
0: All right. Well, there was there was evidence, but there wasn't physical evidence, um, the way there was with the blue dress with Bill Clinton. Although she kept the dress, she said that uh, she was uh, assaulted. And E. Jean Carroll is the lady we're talking about. And she chose to testify in the first trial. Donald Trump did not. And and remember, first trial, he was found liable for sexual assault. Second trial, he was found liable for defaming her because he he kept saying the verdict was wrong and he didn't know who she was. And, there, of course, there were photos of the two of them together. He obviously did know who she was. But, but uh, whether this will have any relevance in the election, he's not going to carry New York State anyway. But... I'm with you, Peter Kovacs. I think his most vulnerable uh, places as far as potential prosecution are New York and Washington, and those are two of the four.
1: I would say, yeah, I'd say he has a vulnerability, a greater vulnerability in those places than he does in Florida. Um, Atlanta, you figure, would be a hung jury, but I, I, who knows if that case will go forward and under what prosecutor.
0: That's a mess, mm-hmm. but it's always good to catch up with you, and I uh, hope you'll come back soon. Okay. Thank you. I'll be and, glad uh, to. Okay, it's good a, to see you as always. An, and, an honor, and thanks for remembering James Gill, who's certainly worthy of all accolades. He wore his uh, talent well, and uh, and some would say uh, he was one of the best two or three writers at the paper.
1: Oh, I think he was, and 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 very, you know, really a distinctive writer, um, and and really had a distinctive style that.
0: You know, and it when, is akin to losing Peter Finney, as we did about a decade they, ago. Yeah, when
1: they made James Gill, they broke the mold in Britain.
0: <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Thank you. We're joined now by Blake Gilpin, professor of renown. He is a person who is a Yale graduate, Ph.D., 2009, and he is an authority on Southern history and potentially uh, 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 specifically about the civil rights era and about black suffrage, and tomorrow there will be a program with him at the old state capitol, and uh, our friend Mary DeRusso is quite proud that uh, Professor Gilpin will be on hand, and good morning to you, sir. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
4: Good morning. Uh, Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, I was born uh, when there was still a poll tax, and literacy tests, things like that. There have been impediments through the years to black people voting in the South in particular, and part of it is that we have a huge minority of black people in the South. In Mississippi, it now exceeds 40%, and some would say that what's happening now is uh, reflective of what happened so long ago. Where are we now, and how did we make any inroads uh, in which black people did get the opportunity to vote without... Uh, intimidation?
4: Well, I mean, one of the most interesting aspects of this long history of, uh, of black Louisians and the vote um, goes back to the, even the period of the Civil War when, um, you know, recently emancipated slaves and also unemancipated slaves were flocking to New Orleans, which was under Union occupation, um, to really pursue these rights, um, you know, physically. Um, And that's a process and a sort of dogged determination to um, get the right specifically to vote um, that's been going on since 1862.
0: 1862. Well, in Louisiana, when we look back uh, on these elections, we know we had— more people than were reflective of of, uh, people voting, and that was largely because the the black minority was being denied the right. How was that done? What were the the methods used to keep from black people casting ballots?
4: Oh, there were so many schemes um, that have been, I mean, really innovated by white Louisianans over the years um that it's pretty uh astonishing i mean you mentioned poll taxes and literacy tests um really any manner of uh of device to prevent black louisianans from exercising the right to vote has been used but they really mainly started um by 1898 there were 44 percent of the registered voters in louisiana were black um, and that's really what I'm going to be talking about um, tomorrow at the House. is this story from 1862 to 1898, which is a story of black triumph and really a triumph of democracy um, in the state of Louisiana that was then <laughs> very doggedly fought against by white Louisianans for the next uh, up until the present day. Uh, that effort to keep black Louisianans from exercising the right to vote.
0: How is that being done today?
4: Well, I mean, to be honest, it's a lot of the same um, schemes and devices that have been used um, since the uh, Reconstruction period. But, I mean, disenfranchisement takes on so many different forms, from the closing of poll locations, that's very common today, um, to um, gerrymandering, which uh, is probably the most common across the United States, but has been used repeatedly, and I'm talking about hundreds of times. Um, since the 1960s with the passage of the Voting Rights Act um, to basically dilute the voting power of black
0: Louisianans. 877-217-5757 and talk at talklouisiana.org. Robin Dow producing. And if you'd like to get in under the wire with Professor Blake Gilpin, he has uh, some knowledge that I think is relevant and it will be on display tomorrow night, 6 o'clock, at the Old State Capitol. And it's about black suffrage and Uh, Mary Olive Pearson, the noted attorney here in Baton Rouge, said when she first registered to vote that uh, she was asked which test she would uh, she would like to take, the black test or the white test, these literacy tests. How were they used to thwart black people from voting?
4: Well, I mean, this is really a story in the modern era about the power of the white registrars of voters. Um, to essentially use any tools that they could really conceive of. I mean, we're talking about to the extent of having a jar of jelly beans and asking black voters to tell them how many jelly beans were in the jar. Um, And so we're, you know, absurd lengths that white registrars of voters, and this is supported by um, sort of white um, political power structure to prevent blacks from even registering to vote, much less those votes, um, you know, counting.
0: Rebel in Sherwood. Rebel, you're on Talk Louisiana with Professor Gilpin. Hi, Rebel. Hi.
4: Thank you you so much, uh, Jim, and thank you, Professor. And, Professor, I I agree with your findings completely. I mean, it's just American history in a nutshell. Anytime there's black progress, especially when it comes to voting, there's always an equal or even more severe white backlash. And the, the most recent example of that, of course, is the election of Barack Obama and the fact that today half of white America simply refuses to accept elections anymore. So if you could, please just speak to that. And, and I, again, I appreciate the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I think that you're, you're 100% correct that the, uh, the sort of unintended consequences of, 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 of a lot of black progress, and you can use something symbolic like the election of Barack Obama, um, if we're talking about the history of the state of Louisiana, Um, Any increases in the black vote automatically generate, I mean, in the the story of Reconstruction, very violent and terrorist action um, to try and prevent that power from coming to bear. Um, And I think it is in in, uh, there's a there's a word that I'll be talking about tomorrow, which is the word tragedy um, that's been used uh, very often to describe the story. But I think tragedy is really balanced um, by triumph and hope. Um, not to uh, invoke uh, Obama's uh, signature phrase, but it really is a, a story where, uh, especially among black Louisianans, uh, that's an inspiring story of fighting against the most overwhelming odds um, just to exercise the most basic right in a democracy, which is the right to vote.
0: Frank and Zachary. Hello, Frank. You're on with Professor Gilpin. Hi, hey,
3: Professor. Hey, Jim. Um, look, I don't, I don't necessarily... Uh, disagree. I, I don't. I don't have the information. Um, but Louisiana's history is just that. It's, it's it's history. It's not. It's it's it is bad in so many ways. But, Miss Professor, when when you were asked to give examples of, of how the, how black votes are blacks are being denied to vote now, you, you go back to history.
0: All right. What about? Uh, some would say that uh, we've we've come a long way and we should not reflect as much on our sordid past uh, and that black folks don't have any impediments now. I, I think that might be a simplistic way to look at it. it. Look what's happened in Georgia, for example, where if you give somebody something to drink at a poll, you could be arrested. But, but uh, I don't want to answer the question for you, Professor. You have the floor.
4: Oh, well, I mean, if we're talking about the modern efforts to um, prevent blacks from voting, I mean, the the sad part of the story is really the consistency with which white Louisianans have fought black enfranchisement. Um, And that's a story that is continuing to this very day. Um, I mean, these are these are efforts that are happening all the time. Um, And I'm talking about the closure poll locations. Um, all sorts of hurdles that are erected to make it more difficult for black voters to participate in democracy when at my basic...
0: Well, we do have to roll, but tomorrow night, six o'clock, you can hear Professor Blake Gilpin and all his glory. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.